Great. Well, thank you very much. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, as Paul uh, uh, pointed out, Andy is my thesis advisor. It's always a little uh, sort of an inti intimidating situation having to get up and give a talk after your thesis advisor, especially doubly in my case uh, because my thesis advisor is both as uh, unpredictable as he is brilliant. Uh, and uh, uh, so I had no idea what Andy would really cover. My goal uh, in this talk is to sort of, uh, whoa, that's really bad what just happened there. I'll just fix that. Should never install software. Uh, I think this should work now. There we go. Is to uh, give this group uh, sort of a background on what uh, I would think they would need to know uh, about recent thermal results. And the main uh, points I'm going to try to make in my talk are sort of shown here. Um, while, of course, it's lunar ice that we're really interested in, um, understanding what's going on in terms of temperature is a re real key to this, and that um, temperature can be thought of as sort of a master variable in this whole uh, problem. As Andy described, uh, temperature determines the thermal stability of volatiles. It also determines the spatial distribution of cold traps and their uh, thermal evolution over time. And then uh, temperature can be used to correlate many of the other data sets that we have that we'll be talking about as the course of the day goes along. And in my talk, I'll be showing some of those correlations and then also come in towards the end of Paul Lucy's talk and talk some about uh, the most, most recent results we have in terms of uh, correlating uh, temperature with uh, some of the Lola results. So that's sort of an outline for my talk. So this slide here is uh, sort of a restatement of a slide that Andy showed, which shows the thermal stability of um, a bunch of volatiles as a function of temperature. And this brings uh, me to one of the first main points I want to make is that there's a lot of potential ices on the moon, not just water. If we take a particular temperature here of a cold trap, let's say uh, 100 Kelvin, uh, these plots show the sublimation rate in meters per billion years uh, for a wide range of volatiles. If I have a cold trap at 100 Kelvin, it shows that we can uh, keep water stable over billions of years at the surface, which was the original Watson, Murray, and Brown uh, suggestion. Uh, but the key thing is that all these other volatiles, um, that includes uh, organics and inorganic volatiles, will also be stable uh, at this temperature as long as their so-called volatility temperature, i.e., say the temperature at which they'd sublimate sort of a millimeter in a billion years, in other words, stable over the life of the solar system, as long as their volatility temperature is higher. So for instance, in a cold trap that's cold enough to trap water ice, we might expect to find a whole range of aromatic hydrocarbons, linear amides, and, and amines, and all these other types of uh, inorganic compounds, mercury, sulfur, et cetera, uh, that are less volatile uh, than water. And as you go down the temperature scale here, then you have the possibility of trapping a wide range of other volatile materials too. 
So this is a very important point that just based on uh, the basic theory of thermal stability, we would expect that the uh, cold traps uh, on uh, all planets uh, contain not just one dominant water species, uh, species water being uh, an important one, uh, but we might expect to find a variety of things. And the, the data that we're getting suggests that that's, in fact, the case. I'll skip these. <laughs> um, so a lot of what I've been involved with over the last uh, few years has been uh, looking at and understanding the data that we've been getting back from the LRO lunar diviner uh, radiometer experiment. LRO now has been orbiting the moon uh, from polar orbit for almost four years now. And we've accumulated uh, a very exciting data set uh, that is by far the most detailed and thorough um, example of the measurement, set of measurements of the uh, thermal emission from an airless body. The instrument uh, provides mostly thermal emission from the surface information as well as solar reflectance. And what we have been doing is trying to interpret this in terms of a range of things, like what it means about the you know, thermal properties of the moon, what it means about composition, and also what it means in terms of the uh, stability of volatiles at the lunar polar regions, which was one of the main goals of the entire mission. The thing about temperature, though, is that uh, there aren't too many things about temperature that necessarily uh, provide direct information about volatiles. You need to sort of correlate uh, this type of information with um, other sorts of data sets to really understand what's going on. But you can learn a lot through temperature, um, especially in terms of the um, spatial distribution of potential lunar cold traps. What I'm showing here are going to be, for the north and south polar regions, uh, compilations of diviner measurements of the temperature of the surface. Um, and we'll define more what that means a little bit later. The um, first set show the annual maximum temperatures uh, in the polar regions. And you can see here that there's quite a wide range. Um, the obliquity of the moon is rather low. Uh, the seasonal variations are just confined to the first sort of uh, uh, the, the region within about one and a half degrees of the pole. And so surfaces that are tilted towards the equator can become very hot in the polar regions uh, as much as sort of 350 Kelvin. Uh, but surfaces that don't receive direct sunlight um, can get very cold. And you can see here that uh, there are some places here where the annual maximum temperature never gets above uh, more or less 50 Kelvin, and this was somewhat of a surprise to us when we first got these data from the moon um, because we hadn't really had a chance to uh, fully uh, explore what some of these crater shapes uh, could do in terms of cold trap temperatures. The next two slides show uh, the annual minimum temperatures. You can see that uh, the moon can become extremely cold. Uh, in certain places, we've measured temperatures down uh, near 20 Kelvin. Again, uh, a little bit exciting. Uh, these are temperatures that are, in fact, colder than the polar caps of Pluto, uh, as we currently understand them, uh, simply because uh, they just are, are places where the sun you know, hasn't shine, shone for billions of years. And uh, they're, they're just extremely cold. Um, 
And then another uh, plot, which is uh, annual average temperatures. And you can see here that there are a number of places where the annual average temperatures are, are less than 100 Kelvin. And this will turn out to be significant from the standpoint of potential water ice cold traps. Now, what can you tell about subsurface temperatures? Well, uh, this is done largely with thermal models, where you basically uh, uh, adjust the parameters to match the observed surface temperatures, and then uh, make assumptions about the uh, subsurface uh, thermal properties. These are some examples from uh, our science paper that are more illustrating the effects of heat flow uh, from the interior, but also illustrate the uh, dependence of temperature variation as a function of depth. So just taking the no heat flow case here, uh, we have a, a, a surface that has an annual average temperature of something like uh, uh, 36 Kelvin. The surface temperatures uh, move around quite a bit. And this is another thing about the cold traps that's important. Uh, you know, the initial goal of divider was to you know, measure the temperatures of the cold traps. But it turns out if you plot these temperatures as a function of time, they go through all sorts of crazy gyrations due to the fact that you have diurnal as well as seasonal temperature variations, as well as large topography, which is constantly uh, moving shadows in and out of these regions. So each of these regions uh, has quite a, a, a complicated uh, temperature history as a function of time. And then if you assume sort of standard uh, Apollo soil thermal properties, these temperature fluctuations then damp down as a function of depth. And so by the time you get roughly two meters below the surface, uh, you're in a, a stable situation thermally as a function of time. And then the uh, heat flow then becomes an important parameter in terms of determining uh, the temperature. Now, if you have different thermal properties, i.e. maybe ones of solid ice, then these temperature waves will penetrate quite a bit deeper uh, into the subsurface. And uh, this uh, could be an important parameter in terms of the total depth of the lunar cold trap. Yeah, this is, this is, this is, this is the Elkross uh, landing site, which is a little out of order because I was going to talk about that next. But just to give you an idea of what we're talking about in terms of the, the depth of these cold traps. Now, what would uh, determine whether, for instance, a volatile like water might be stable there, um, you can, uh, again, sort of restate uh, these sublimation rates. Here's one meter, millimeter loss per year. This is for exposed surface ice, the blue uh, curve here. And you'll see the canonical uh, in 10 to the ninth uh, years uh, at 100 Kelvin. Um, but as Andy pointed out, uh, there could be uh, cold trapping on much shorter time scales, maybe even as short as diurnal time scales. Uh, if you look at sort of at 10 microns per year sublimation rates, you can get uh, potentially stable surface ice at temperatures of about 170 Kelvin. So this gives you an idea of sort of the range of cold trapping temperatures that can occur, depending on what your frame of reference is in terms of time. And then uh, burying ice below uh, soil layers uh, provides a diffusive barrier. And that will enable you to have uh, ice stable at warmer temperatures than you might have expected if it was at the surface. And this shows for uh, 10 centimeter and 5 meter lag deposits, uh, what that effect is. And that you know, effect is on the order of uh, 20 Kelvin as well. Of course, 
subject to uncertainties in terms of our understanding of the diffusive properties of the soil. So uh, the bottom line is that um, thermal stability provides quite a range of, of possibilities in terms of where ice could be stashed. Now we've applied uh, these types of calculations to um, the thermal state, for instance, of the south polar region of the moon. And this provides a sort of a permafrost map based solely on temperature as to where water ice could be stable in the lunar south polar region. And you see here that the uh, so-called permanently shadowed regions, or PSRs, which are indicated in, in, in white here, these are places where you could have uh, thermally stable ice on the surface for billions of years. Surrounding these regions, though, are going to be areas that do receive some sunlight during uh, part of the year, but yet maintain average temperatures that are cold enough that you could allow uh, ground ice to be stable. And this shows where there's calculated areas here. Basically, all of these so-called PSRs are surrounded by uh, potentially uh, regions of potential ground ice stability. Typical depths for these, assuming standard lunar soil properties, are on the order of 10 centimeters uh, below the surface. And what we'll see as the uh, short coast goes along is that uh, if this were, let's say, Mars, for instance, where you have you know, almost all the uh, water ice niches are filled, uh, there'd be a, a, a ton of ice uh, on the moon. And that's not what we see. We have, though, one piece of really exciting ground truth, and that came from the Elcross impact. Elcross impacted into uh, Cabeus, into a region of permanent uh, surface ice stability. Turns out to be one of the coldest places uh, on the moon. And this shows a histogram of all of the, uh, the temperatures in the south polar region of the moon. You can see that uh, there's quite a bit of territory below 100 Kelvin in terms of annual average temperature. This dot here shows where Elcross uh, ends up on that. Um, and uh, you can see here that thermal stability would in fact predict the stability of, of quite a number of volatile species, uh, you know, including all these things, you know, SO2, NH3, CH2O, CO2, H2S, uh, water, and then as well as all the uh, uh, less volatile compounds than water, including mercury, sodium, and sulfur, all the ones that I've circled now have been detected uh, either directly or indirectly uh, by various uh, instruments on LCROSS, LRO, and elsewhere. And so on the basis of at least the LCROSS experience, the, the basic concept of, you know, thermal cold trapping and volatile stability seems to work, all right? Uh, the issue, though, is, you know, how lucky a strike <laughs> was this one piece of ground truth that we have at Elcross, all right, relative to all the other remote sensing data we have, which suggests that there isn't a lot of ice, at least in the accessible uh, part of the moon to remote sensing. And so this is where things get kind of interesting. I just wanted to touch briefly on this idea of cold trap evolution, because it may be important uh, for some of the things we discussed earlier. With thermal models, we can reproduce many aspects of the 
observed temperature behavior once we have the topography, which really uh, controls the distribution of sunlight and reflected scattered solar radiation and thermal uh, emission from, from other surfaces. Uh, we've gone through this exercise to sort of calculate how these cold traps now have changed as a function of time. Basically, as the tidal evolution moves the moon away from the Earth, the obliquity of the moon uh, has also decreased as a function of time. So as you go back in time, more of the uh, poles of the moon have been illuminated. And what I'm going to show here are some calculations where we've basically um, demonstrated this. So here's current obliquity of the moon. You can see lots of cold traps. Anything that's basically uh, blue here is a place where water ice could potentially be stable. Now, we don't have the time scale over which the, moon, uh, the moon's obliquity evolved because um, that depends on details of the uh, dissipation in the Earth and stuff that, that, that are still being worked out. But we do know it certainly happened. As you increase the obliquity to four, you can see the, uh, uh, the cold trap areas are decreasing and colder and colder. And then right around eight, we get to a very interesting transition here. Now, Andy made the point that uh, the coldest craters, as shown here, are the large flat-floored craters that have the least amount of uh, uh, scattered solar and infrared radiation at their centers. And that's true. And the, uh, the, 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 the smaller craters are, in fact, uh, warmer in their interiors. But by about 8 or 12 degrees obliquity, you end up with a very different situation. Basically, now the sun has started to peer in <laughs> into these wide, flat craters, rendering them useless as cold traps. And then here we show the earliest cold traps, the ones that have been in effect the longest. And these turn out to be the sort of larger uh, bowl-shaped craters. So it's very interesting that um, there, there's sort of this, uh, this transition where the uh, oldest cold traps uh, are going to be the, uh, the, the bowl-shaped craters, and then the wide, big craters that are the coldest today are more uh, uh, relative newcomers uh, in terms of their, their cold trapping capability. So what I presented for you is sort of uh, more or less stuff that's been uh, shown in, in, in published papers. Um, but there's a lot of new observations and new thinking coming along. Uh, with regard to these cold traps on the moon. And one very important uh, factor is this idea of sort of on what actual spatial scale they're on. We focus most of our efforts so far on, you know, sort of a large impact crater scale cold traps sort of, you know, on the order of 20 kilometers and stuff like that, uh, because these are easy to quantify and model and deal with. But the moon is an airless body. and the soil has low thermal conductivity, and so it can support very, very large thermal gradients on relatively short uh, distances. And the way radiation works is it's more or less independent of distance. And so um, there's a lot of effort uh, ongoing uh, with the Diviner data and, and other data sets uh, to understand in detail what's going on on, on finer and finer timescales. You can see in this high-resolution uh, Diviner image where we took this during the uh, earliest part of the LRO mission, we had very uh, low elevations over the south polar region, um, that there's a lot of detail to the thermal map. This is an actual thermal map shown in black and white. And you can see here that there's, there's at every spatial scale, there's, there's a lot of 
uh, thermal variations. And the question is sort of, you know, what does that really mean in terms of cold traps? Could you have a little micro cold trap behind a rock or a little uh, rill? The LROC team uh, on LRO, the imaging system, is now producing high resolution views of some of these craters just looking in scattered light. They figured out a way to you know, tune their experiment and change their exposure uh, to get views inside these craters. Here's the Faustini crater. And you can see here that there's yeah, a tremendous amount of, of stuff going on uh, inside the crater in terms of illumination. And this is going to translate all the way down to uh, fairly small spatial scales, probably even down to uh, scales in meters. And so the question is, you know, what, what could that mean in terms of the uh, cold trapping uh, capability of, of the lunar surface? Uh, Paul Hain has actually uh, done some work here where he's sort of taken a, a model where you just assume a statistically random distribution of slope angles and uh, orientations and sort of uh, calculated uh, what fraction of the area as a function of latitude ought to be a cold trap uh, based on that angular distribution. And notice that, you know, basically when you get down to about uh, 75 degrees latitude, you start creating all these micro habitats potentially uh, for water, and their distribution increases as you go to lower and lower latitudes. And he uh, suggested <laughs> that uh, this could be one explanation for what's going on uh, with these uh, neutron measurements, in that if you have a statistically increasing number of these little cold traps at uh, higher and higher latitudes, um, these could then uh, provide uh, something of a signal that could be identified, for instance, by a very low spatial resolution instrument like a neutron uh, spectrometer. So uh, this is just you know, one sort of uh, dimension of the problem that needs to be taken into account. I might add, though, uh, that uh, any effort to land safely on the lunar surface, not just crash into it like Tony did, uh, <laughs> really <laughs> needs to take into account uh, this whole landing hazard issue. You know, basically the whole, and this, take it from someone who has a lot of experience with, you know, uh, failed landings. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the lunar surface is, is quite treacherous in this respect. Uh, in that it's basically, you know, you just look at the lunar uh, Apollo pictures, uh, they're, 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 co they're covered with these impact craters. And, uh, you know, if you don't have a, you know, Neil Armstrong guiding you down to a safe sp spot on the surface, uh, there's a pretty reasonable probability you would end up landing into, you know, uh, a relatively steep slope, 20 degree, 30 degree sort of um, impact crater scenario. And that's really tough. And these occur in these cold traps as well. So. Uh, just be aware of that as, as you think about uh, different mission scenarios. I wanted to uh, spend uh, the rest of the time I have right now um, talking mostly about Mercury because uh, for the case of Mercury, uh, we have a very unusual situation uh, where we have uh, uh, a bunch of different types of data sets that can be combined uh, to tell a very a coherent story along with the thermal one uh, for the uh, thermal stability of volatiles. And this is a bunch of uh, work that was published earlier this year in, in, in three papers in science. And he talked about the radar results. He didn't show, though, these beautiful radar images that we have that 
um, were taken uh, by, uh, uh, by Arecibo, uh, which really show the impact craters at the, at the poles of Mercury and their, their extremely bright uh, uh, radar signatures. Um, and, you know, back in the 90s, I mean, we pretty much knew that this stuff uh, was water ice uh, from a variety of lines of evidence, including the early thermal modeling. But now with MESSENGER, with the ability to orbit the planet, to get topographic information, neutron information, uh, and reflectance information all together combined with uh, thermal models, uh, we have a really amazing airtight case. And, and this is, I think, important because it sort of shows, I think, a little bit how we could operate in terms of the moon, in terms of uh, unraveling some of these issues, even though it's a very different sort of story. So, first key piece of evidence comes from the messenger neutron spectrometer, which basically flew close enough to these deposits to get a signal of neutron depression. And this is shown um, in the uh, Lawrence et al. paper. Basically, um, what you're showing is um, a simulated uh, what the neutrons should have looked like had all these cold traps been composed of water, and then the red measurements are showing, the, uh, uh, showing a similar trend. So we have uh, essentially a, 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 a neutron signature of the presence of hydrogen at the poles, which is very exciting. And then the uh, MLA instrument provides two uh, key pieces of information. MLA is the mercury laser altimeter. Uh, it provides topography uh, through measuring the, speed of, you know, the, the time of flight of the laser pulses, as well as reflectance. And this is the first time we really got a look at one of these uh, reflectance data sets. And Paul Lucy is going to talk about this at length at the next, uh, 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 in the next talk, so I won't belabor it. But suffice it to say that it makes a, a very objective um, uh, normal reflectance measurement of the surface of Mercury. And the idea is to then start correlating this with the thermal results. And one of the key pieces of data they got was in this uh, Prokofiev crater. Um, it's uh, around 85 degrees latitude. It's a big crater. And interestingly is when, when they got the first uh, uh, reflectance data inside the crater, uh, they, they found very, very bright reflectivity. And this was uh, probably the most exciting piece of data I've ever seen uh, because <laughs> it, 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 it has the potential of of confirming that a lot of the things that we really thought were true about how volatiles ought to work on these airless bodies were, in fact, uh, true. So my contribution to this was to take the uh, topography data, use thermal models to calculate the same types of quantities I've been describing on the moon, and then from this calculate um, the thermal stability of water ice in the very same way. Because it's so hot on Mercury, there aren't going to be these wild large ground ice deposits, but inside the craters, uh, we expect to find both surface and subsurface ice. We correlated the positions of the predicted water ice surface and subsurface deposits with the radar results, and it was essentially a perfect match. This green line here is what shows that temperature is along the x-axis, and this is the fraction of radar bright areas that have different temperatures, and basically there's a cliff right at 100 Kelvin, which means that surfaces that, uh, whose annual average temperatures are greater than 100 Kelvin are not radar bright, 
and surfaces that have temperatures that are lower than 100 Kelvin are radar bright. And this means basically that those radar bright signatures are due to the predominance of water ice. And this is also required to get the bright radar signals. And we know in Mercury that these deposits are, you know, at least, you know, a few meters thick, okay? They're probably not like ice caps, you know, like with, um, uh, you know, with, with, with like glaciers, but they're certainly, you know, very, very substantial uh, clean deposits of, of, um, of ice. Uh, and what's so interesting about them is that their distribution appears to be very well organized. In other words, it's following the thermal patterns exactly, uh, which is very interesting. And this shows some examples where we sort of zoomed in in a couple regions here uh, to try to uh, sort of uh, elucidate what's going on a little bit uh, better. And I just wanted to show a couple of these plots here because you'll see a lot more of them later on. This is plotting annual average temperature as a function of radar brightness. And you can see here, again, all of the hotter areas are radar dark. And then as soon as you get into the uh, areas that are less than 100 Kelvin, then you get a, a strong signal of increasing radar brightness. Uh, it's a beautiful result. And then this shows the uh, reflectance of the uh, MLA instrument. This is annual maximum temperature. You can't see it, it's just on the bottom here. And this is the MLA reflectance. And basically, uh, this is sort of average mercury. There's dark material surrounding these deposits. And then as soon as you get uh, close to 100 Kelvin, then all of a sudden the MLA reflectance goes right up, indicating the presence of surface ice. And it's very exciting on mercury because um, there's a lot of processes, as Andy described, that are going to tend to uh, either destroy the ice or cover it up. And the fact that we see the ice on Mercury uh, sitting there on the surface today, uh, exactly where it's supposed to be thermally, means there must be uh, a lot of processes that are delivering ice to the, to, the, to the Mercury region, and that these are overpowering the various processes that are going to try to uh, be destroying ice, of which there are many. I probably won't have time to, to show these, uh, but these are a set of uh, sh shots that were done at the press conferences that sort of illustrate this. And uh, this is showing annual maximum temperature in the polar region, uh, ice depth. And here's the MLA results that show both dark as well as some bright areas. Uh, these are off the main polar cap, but this is where we have the best data. And you can see these little bright patches here indicated by the, uh, by the arrows. Those turn out to be, if you keep your eye on those, exactly where the models predict that surface ice uh, should be stable. Final thing I want to show, since the red light's on, uh, is uh, some, most, some of the most recent data we have from Messenger, where using the imaging system, now they've figured out how to uh, uh, image inside these permanently shadowed regions. And this is a composite of both illuminated as well as um, shadowed images of Prokofiev Crater. And this was first shown by Nancy Chabot at the, um, um, at the LPSC meeting this year. And they actually can, you can actually see the boundaries and the outlines of this ice deposit, the surface ice deposit inside this crater here, directly with the uh, scattered light from the Im imaging observation. It's amazing. You know, this is the picture of the century, as far as I'm concerned, because uh, it, it really uh, drives home the fact that 
these deposits are really there um, and that they're bright and that you can actually see them even though there's no direct illumination. You can also see the variations uh, that exist uh, within the deposits as well, and that's an important. Yeah, it's, 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 it's just a, a relatively thin coating. Uh, but anyway, so with that, I think I'll, uh, I'll close it down and uh, turn it back to Paul.